Good morning, everyone. How are you? Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to uh, Galatians chapter 5. Uh, and if you're a guest this morning, just so you know what we're doing, we're in a series right now called Two Ways to Live, in which we are looking at um, what is referred to in Scripture as the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, over the past few weeks, um, we've talked a lot about the importance of personal spiritual assessment, you know, taking an honest look uh, at, our, at our individual lives. Because too often, while we acknowledge how as our creator, God knows what is right and true and healthy and best for us as human beings, and you know, we readily affirm the authority of his word, on a moment-to-moment basis, our lives tend to be shaped more by our own sinful preferences than anything else. And we're very, very quick to, to judge, to point out the failures and evil of others, yet we ignore our own sinful attitudes and our own behaviors. You know, we sing prayerful songs about growing deeper in our relationship with Jesus, which is great. But I got to tell you, the older I get, the more I realize that what is absolutely essential to that kind of spiritual depth and maturity is honesty. Honesty with God, honesty with ourselves, and honesty with one another. You know, what do our lives really look like? How are we really living? Because uh, here's the deal. What we do every day reveals who we are. Uh, Jesus put it this way. He said, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. And as we've seen, the Apostle Paul later on in the New Testament picks up on that teaching. And he writes to Christians in the church explaining how when we put our faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God comes into our lives in a very real way and begins to transform us. You know, he, he takes us from, from where we're not just gratifying the desires of, of our sinful nature, and he leads us to a very different type of existence. And how do we know if that's happening? Uh, Paul says there's tangible evidence of it. He writes, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And all of these things that Paul mentions are things that we sense, we sense are wrong, they're hurtful, they're unhealthy. But by contrast, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And there's something, there's something in our humanness that tells us these things, yes, these things are right, these things are healthy, these things are beneficial. This list describes the kind of men and women uh, we were meant to be. And, uh, and like Jesus, Paul, Paul describes these virtues using fruit as a metaphor, fruit representing that which, which grows above ground, something everybody can see. In fact, when Paul uses the term fruit, he uses it in its plural form, signifying that all of these, all of these attending virtues are produced by the Spirit's power and presence in our lives. Not just one or two of them. All of them are growing and manifesting themselves more in our lives and in our relationships and in our church every day. So far, we've talked about uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. If you've missed any of them, I encourage you to go online and listen, catch up. But this morning, I want to talk about how the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. Now, as I mentioned, uh, I've mentioned it before, when I decided to teach on the fruit of the Spirit, uh, I figured that I would address each of these uh, virtues individually, thinking, you know, how hard could it be? How hard could it be to explain love, joy, peace, patience, kindness? But i got to tell you, it's not really that easy because, in fact, it's quite challenging because all of these virtues overlap so much. You know, they're, they're, they're interconnected, they're interdependent. 
And I've realized that you can't really have one without, without the other. For example, last week we talked about kindness, right? Kindness being uh, the act of graciously and generously giving to and going out of your way to help people in need no matter who they are. That's kindness. But can you really be kind without having any, or at least some level of goodness? I don't think so. I mean, in reality, these two virtues, kindness and goodness, are very, very closely connected, and yet Paul separates them, indicating that there is a difference. So how are they different? When I started thinking through it, I got to tell you, you know, the word good sounded boring to me. It just sounded boring to me. I'm, I'm, think, I'm thinking that's because we use it so much. So frequently we use it in our, in our daily conversations that it's become, it's become very common. It's become pedestrian. It's sort of a stale superlative that's lost its punch, its impact, its wonder. I mean, how many times a day do we say things like, hey, how's your soup? Oh, the soup is good. It's good soup. How's your Uncle Fred? He's doing good. He's good. Fred's good, right? How, how do you like that movie? Yeah, it was a good movie. It wasn't great. It was a good movie. Um, in fact, best-selling books today get titled Good to Great because in our culture, good is just okay. It's not all that exciting. It's not that big a deal. And so here's my question. What does Paul mean by goodness, and why is it a big deal to him? Well, the term that Paul uses here in Galatians 5.22, uh, the one that we translate good, is a Greek term, agathos, which refers to something that is intrinsically moral, righteous, and just. Uh, and then when Paul adds a suffix to it, it, he creates sort of this abstract noun form that we translate goodness. And while it's, it's hard to, um, to nail down a, a, a simple and succinct definition for this Greek term, here's my best shot at it. Goodness is the state or quality of a life characterized by moral uprightness. It's a, it's a deliberate preference of right over wrong and resisting of moral evil. And for all intents and purposes, in this particular context, goodness represents you know, the opposite of the acts and the desires of the sin nature that Paul lists in verses 19 through 21. The implication being that, that as Christians, by the power of God's Spirit at work within us, to an ever-increasing degree, our attitudes, our behaviors, our relationships, our lives are being characterized by this moral uprightness, this goodness. But here's the thing. I've been a Christian a long time. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't grow up uh, in a Christian home, but I've been a Christian a long time. And over the years, what I've learned is that there's no way, there is no possible way that I can produce this kind of consistent moral goodness on my own. I can't do it. Because by nature, I'm not that good of a person. I mean, sure, I can do, I can do good things now and then if I want to. The problem is I don't always want to, Right? My human inclinations tend to push me more towards pride and selfishness and anger and jealousy and envy and greed and all the rest. And again, that's not to say that I, I, I don't have the capacity to be good. It's just that on my own, I don't have the, the power or the will to be that good. Uh, my sinful, rebellious nature is pretty strong. And I realize this may come as a huge surprise to you guys, but I haven't always been the kind, gentle, patient, gracious, loving person that you see before you today. It just has, hasn't been that way. God's Spirit has been graciously working on transforming me for a long time, and I've got an awful long ways to go yet. In fact, before I was a Christian, um, in all honesty, I was involved with some pretty messed up, immoral, unhealthy, and even criminal behavior. But um, I didn't care. I didn't give a rip. Why should I? And then I became a Christian, I became a follower of Jesus, and I had this radical conversion that lasted two weeks. 
<laughs> and, then, and then, you know, fell back into the old ways of things, the old attitudes, the old behaviors. But, but over a period of time, slowly but surely, God's Spirit began to convict me about what was happening in my life. And as I got involved with, with other Christians, I got involved in a, a Bible study, I began to learn through Scripture what God says is right and true and moral and healthy and, 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 and helpful and good. And suddenly my, my thinking and, and the choices I was making in life began to change. And many of you guys know what I'm talking about. You understand that story because it's part of your story. And just as Jesus promised, when we put our faith in him, the Spirit of God comes and, and, and begins to teach us truth and empower us and convict us at times. And then guide us. he guides us toward lives of moral goodness. But it's a struggle the whole entire way. And again, I've been a Christian a long time, yet I still struggle with choosing what is good. I'm not going to lie to you. My guess is that everybody in this room uh, does the same, has the same struggle. Even the Apostle Paul, who penned these words, had a, had a problem with goodness. In a letter he wrote to Christians in Rome, he confessed it. He essentially said, look, I cannot, we cannot possibly produce this level of moral goodness on our own because by nature, we're just not that good. You know, if, from the time we, we enter this world as infants, no one has to teach us about being bad. We don't need that instruction. We need to be taught about what is, what is right and what is good. And uh, those are hard lessons for us. And Paul says, uh, he says, he says to the church, he says, look, I struggle just like the rest of you guys. He goes, I, I, sometimes I don't understand what I do. For what I, I want to do, I don't do it. But what I hate, that's what I end up doing. I know that good itself does not dwell in me, he says, that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't seem to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. What a wretched man am I, he says. What a twisted individual I am. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. And you know, this is what I um, so appreciate about, about Paul, is he never copped an attitude of superiority. He really understood uh, the grace of God, and he was always upfront about the fact that goodness did not come naturally to him. It came supernaturally. But not everybody, not everybody sees it that way. Not, not everybody feels that way. In fact, this whole idea of moral uprightness, this idea of goodness, made me think of an interaction Jesus had uh, with a guy one day referred to in Scripture as a, as, a, as a young ruler, which means he was a man of wealth, power, and social influence. And he came to Jesus one day and he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, and based on the content of the question, we, we know obviously this man was a religious man. And by addressing Jesus as good, as good teacher, we also know he was courteous, he was polite, he was respectful. This was a common greeting at the time. And uh, he no doubt expected Jesus to return the favor and respond by saying something like, greetings, good, honorable, and noble seeker of truth. Uh, but Jesus doesn't say that. In fact... He doesn't even say hello to the guy because the man's use of the term good caught Jesus' attention, and so he immediately focuses on it, and he says, why do you call me good? And I don't know how this guy felt about it, but I can tell you when, when I ask someone a question and they answer with a question, it drives me crazy, you know, and uh, I'm pretty sure that's not, was, that was not Jesus' intention. In fact, uh, rabbis at the time, that's how they taught. Someone would ask a question, they'd ask a question back. It was all in an effort to get the person asking the question to think, and that's what Jesus is doing. 
He's getting the, the man to stop and to think about what he was saying. Why do you call me good? Jesus says. No one is good except God alone. And just so you know, um, this is a paraphrase of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, both of which say there is no one who does good, not even one. And certainly this Jewish man would have been familiar with those Hebrew texts. But, you know, what was the point of this? I mean, what, why would Jesus respond this way to this, this, this man? Two reasons. First, uh, it was Jesus' subtle way of affirming his deity. You know, reading between the lines, it's like he was saying to this, uh, this Jewish ruler, hey, you know, you know that, the, that there's no human being who is truly good. You know that. So if you call me good, you might as well call me God. Because no one is perfectly good except God. But Jesus was also simply answering the man's question, which was what? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is trying to point out to the guy that there was really nothing he could do to earn eternal life because he couldn't be or couldn't do enough good. But that's, that's not what this guy thought. Uh, and so Jesus does a bit of a reality check with him, and he calls the guy to account by clarifying God's standard of goodness, which every Jewish person at the time knew was the Ten Commandments. That's where it started. Jesus says, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false, false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And without skipping a beat, this dude says, he has a high opinion of his own goodness. He says, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Now think about that for a second. All these I've kept since I was a boy. And it seems to me there are only two logical options here. By claiming he kept all of the commands perfectly all of his life, 24-7, means that either the guy was incredibly arrogant and self-righteous to the point of delusional, or he was being honest and he actually obeyed all of the commands. So let's do this. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's assume that he's honest and he's accurate. Suppose it was true. He never committed adultery, never murdered, never stole, never lied, honored his parents every waking moment of his life. All the parents are saying, yeah, right. <laughs> but if so, if this was true, then you've got to concede that would make this guy a pretty good moral person, a whole lot better than me. And, and, yet, and, and that is what he's saying. He says, Jesus, you know, I've kept all these commands. I think I'm a, a truly good person, good enough to go to heaven. I just want to make sure, have I missed anything? To which Jesus says, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll, you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when the man heard that, the scripture says, he became very sad because he was extremely wealthy. Now, before we say anything else about this, this historic interaction, tell me something. Why did God give the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament law to the people of Israel? If you remember, first, he gave his people the commandments to help them understand how to live together in safe, honest, healthy, sustainable community. Remember, God had rescued the people out of captivity. They were slaves in Egypt for centuries. God res graciously rescues them out of that. And suddenly there they were in the wilderness, found themselves for a nation, a community for the first time. They didn't know, well, how, what do we do? How do we behave? And so God says, this is, how, this, is, this is what you need to do. Keep in mind, God's commands weren't the random dictates of some capricious deity. They revealed the wisdom of God, the creator of all things, who fashioned human beings in his likeness, and therefore he knows what is right and what is true and what is healthy and what is safe and what is best for us. And so God's commandments explain what's good. But 
in the end, they also point out the fact that we're not so good. As flawed human beings, we can't seem to keep his commandments. In fact, um, a bit earlier in his letter here, the Apostle Paul wrote to, uh, the, he wrote to the Galatians, he wrote that the law of God reveals our sin. You know, uh, it shows the Israelites, it showed the Israelites, it shows us how we can't be perfectly good all the time. We can't do it. Uh, Paul explained it this way. He says, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. In other words, the law and the commandments of God expose our need for grace and, and, and our need to be rescued by showing how, as imperfect human beings, we all sin. We all miss the mark. We, we fall short of God's standard of perfect goodness. Uh, when writing to Christians in the city of Rome, Paul summarized it this way. He said, Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. In this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. What, what did Paul mean? He was saying that ever since man's original rebellion, sin has been present in our world. It's present in our environment. It's part of the human experience, and we're all guilty of it. But because it's really easy for us to ignore it or to deny it, God gave the commandments to point out our sin, our rebellion, and our lack of true goodness, and thus holds us accountable. Now, with that in mind, think again of what Jesus says to this rich ruler. And by the way, of the Ten Commandments, Jesus here references number five, six, seven, eight, and nine. And he says to the man, you know the commandments, right? And the guy says, yeah, I know them. I've kept them. I know them. I've kept them. Jesus says, really? Okay, no adultery. No, I've been faithful to my wife. You honor your mother and father all the time. I'm a perfect son. No murder? Nope. Never rip anybody off? No, I've never stolen a thing. You're not telling a lie, are you? No, sir, I've never lied in my life. I mean, look, even if those things were true, this guy, even if this guy was squeaky clean when it came to commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, he, here's his problem. He never, he never got past commandment number one, which was what? God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And this guy did. And Jesus was pointing it out. He says, you lack one thing, sell all the stuff you have and give to the poor. And the guy just crumbles to pieces. Mark was there. Mark writes in, his, in his, uh, his account that the guy's face just dropped. I mean, he had a physical reaction to what Jesus said. And, uh, and it was all because his wealth was his God. It's something he worshipped. It was the most important thing in his life, and he wasn't giving it up. He didn't even try to bargain. He didn't even try to say, hey, how about 50%? So here's the reality. This guy, this guy was good, but not that good. Not as good as he thought. And certainly not as good as God. And Jesus simply wanted to help this re religious man recognize that and understand he couldn't be good enough. He couldn't do enough to earn eternal life. None of us can. And so it's not a matter of doing good or being good that gets us to heaven. It's not an issue of human goodness, but God's grace. And what is so tragic about that interaction, at least for me, is that the man walks away from Jesus. He just walks away sad. Which illustrates to me how, how hard it is sometimes for us to face the truth of our, own, of our own brokenness, of our own sin, of our own idolatry, of our own judgmentalism, of our own failures, of our own moral inadequacies. You know, when all this went down, the disciples didn't catch on 
uh, quick to what Jesus was saying. They were a little slow in the uptake sometimes. And so they listen to this and they, get, they start to get freaked out. And they say, well, Jesus, if this rich, influential, good religious man can't be saved, what hope do we have? And Jesus looked at him and he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Translation, only God is perfectly good. And so only God, by his grace, can forgive and rescue those who are not. Now, you may be wondering, okay, this is interesting, but what does it have to do with the fruit of the Spirit being goodness? I think it has a lot to do with it. Because so often people, even many people in the church today, get the, the notion of goodness all mixed up. And it's just easy for us to fall into thinking that it's our human attempts at morality that earn the respect of God and merits eternal rescue. Which is essentially what... Um, Christians in the Galatian church uh, were being told by a group of false teachers. They were called Judaizers. That word literally means to live like a Jew. That's what the word means. And they were going around and they were telling people in the church, look, it's okay to believe in Jesus. That's all well and good. That's fine. But you also have to be morally and religiously good. You got to keep all the rituals. You got to do all this and that and the other thing you gotta, in order to merit eternal life. And Paul says, no, that's not true. That's not good news. That's crushing news. Paul says it's by grace through faith that results in eternal life, which then produces a life of increasing goodness. You see the difference? It's a massive difference. Uh, for, for those of you who are visual learners, it looks something like this. The false teachers went around, they said, faith in Jesus plus good works, in other words, human effort, equals eternal rescue. And Paul says, No. Faith in Jesus results in eternal rescue because of God's grace, and it leads to a life of increasing goodness because of the Holy Spirit's power to transform us. Two very different sequences that are critical to understand in order to understand Christianity versus religion. But here's the thing. I'm willing to cut the Galatians some slack in this because... Because the reason they were falling for this idea of religious meritorious goodness is the reason we all fall for it. It's centered around their inflated opinion of themselves. We all have it. We have an inflated opinion of our, of our human goodness and, and how we want to assert that and believe in our goodness. Every two years, uh, an organization known as the, it's called the Josephson Institute, it's out of Los Angeles, conducts a comprehensive survey of high school students, somewhere between 20 and 30,000 students around the nation. And the survey's called uh, The Ethics of American Youth. And uh, students are asked a series of questions regarding morality and behavior. And the most recent survey found that 30% of students admitted stealing from a store in the past year. 20% stole something from a friend, 23% stole from their parents or their family, 64% cheated on a test, and yet 93% of the students surveyed said they're satisfied with their personal ethics and their moral character, 81% said that when it comes to doing right, they're still basically good and better than most people they know. But hey man, this is not just a student thing. This is hard for all of us to admit. It's hard for all of us to admit that we're just not as good as we think. Atheist groups like the American Humanist Association uh, uh, assert that, well, we, we don't need God to be good. We are good. We do good for the sake of goodness. It's part of who we are as human beings. We're good. And this, um, this assertion for me raises two issues. First, for those who deny the existence of God, upon what basis can they define what's good and bad? How do they know? 
how do they know what goodness really is? If there's no transcendent truth, if there's no absolute truth, then any discussion on right or wrong versus, or good versus evil becomes a matter of personal preference and opinion. And what makes their opinion any more valid or less valid than somebody else's? Hence the quandary and the chaos of relativism. Because understand something, when you, when you destroy the possibility of absolute truth, you destroy the possibility of any truth and any definition of good and evil. And the second issue I have is how this atheistic thinking perpetuates this idea uh, that human goodness under, under its own power can change the world. That's what all the, uh, the, 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 the philosophers, the Enlightenment philosophers said and, uh, during the, the 19th and 20th centuries and, and uh, that man can solve his problem through, through education, through you know, politics, through funding, through whatever, that we're good enough to solve our own problem. We can change the world. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, I think it's a good idea to encourage people to try <laughs> to be good. We should do that. But if it is our contention that human goodness will solve all of Earth's problems and rescue us, well, I got to say, there's just really no evidence that any of us are that good. And in fact, I think one could argue history seems to demonstrate the very opposite of that. According to Jesus, there's no one who is truly and perfectly good except God alone. But do you see how, do you see how this inflated opinion of ourselves can impact how we try and relate to God? Do you see how that can work? How this ongoing narrative within, within humanity, uh, it's a narrative that transcends the centuries, it transcends cultures, it transcends the continents. It's a, it's a narrative that tells us that if we just work hard enough, if we're just honest enough and generous enough and fair enough and, and, and pure enough and moral enough and sober enough and religious enough, if we're just good enough, we can impress God and earn his divine favor. It's a global narrative. Every religious system in the world at its core, asserts the same thing, that faith alone is not sufficient. Some good moral religious action is required to please and appease God. Every religion says it, except biblical Christianity, which veers off from the others and stands on its own, its core assertion being, you know what, we're not, we're not as good as we think. And humanity is sinfully flawed to such a deep degree, we cannot be good enough we cannot perform well enough to earn the favor of a holy, right, just, and perfectly good God. We can't do it. And look, I mean, I understand, I understand that this is a rather pessimistic assessment of the human condition. I get that, way more so than any other religion uh, suggests. And I understand that it irritates some people, it offends some people, and maybe offends a lot of people to hear that we can't be good enough to get to heaven. But you know what? As human beings, it may be offensive to be underestimated, but it is fatal to be overestimated. And Christianity doesn't do that. Jesus taught it. Paul affirms that there's nothing we can do that's good enough to earn our, our way to heaven, which is why we need a Savior in the first place. We need a rescuer. It's why we need the grace of God. It's interesting. In his recently published book, it just came out this year, entitled The Road to Character, New York Times best-selling author David Brooks, he talks about this whole idea of character and, and goodness and all this. And at one point in the book, he asserts this. He says, you know, the struggle against the weaknesses in yourself as a human being is never a solitary struggle. No person can achieve self-mastery on his or her own. 
Individual human will, reason, compassion, and character are not strong enough to consistently defeat things like selfishness, pride, greed, and self-deception. Everybody needs redemptive assistance from outside, and people are looking everywhere for it, rules, traditions, ancestors, institutions. He says, but for believers, believers acknowledge that help comes from God. And essentially, that's what Paul is saying. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying that if left to ourselves, um, arrogance, immorality, hatred, jealousy, dishonesty, rage, envy, all of those unhealthy and destructive things that flow out of our sin nature will dominate our lives. They will. We need redemptive assistance from outside of ourselves. We need help in overcoming those things. And when we experience the grace of God through faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God comes and he helps us. He's called the helper. And he begins to transform us and produces evidence of his power and presence in our lives by which goodness, moral goodness, then becomes more and more the norm for us than the exception. For the fruit of God's Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness. A quality of life characterized by moral uprightness and the deliberate, ever-increasing preference of right over wrong and the resisting of evil. Here's Here's my Ray K summary. We don't try to change our attitudes and behaviors and be morally good to become Christians. Our attitudes and behaviors change and become increasingly good because we are Christians. We come to Jesus totally messed up, but we don't stay totally messed up because Jesus changes things. God's grace changes things. God's spirit changes things. He changes us from the inside out. Is he changing you? Let's pray. Father, I think, I think we have to admit, at least I'm willing to admit, that I, I have... A, uh, an overinflated opinion of my own goodness. And that does not serve us well. And um, in, over to, in, in order to overcome that, we have to, we have to, we have to be honest. We have to be honest with you, be honest with ourselves, be honest with one another that we're just really not that good. None of us are. And... Uh, if our lives are spent just trying to prove ourselves to you, um, believing that if we can be good enough, not just to solve our world's problems, but to earn eternal life, we are going to be sorely disappointed because we're just, we're just not that good. Uh, so, Lord, I, I pray that maybe in these moments we have left that your spirit who's at work in us, both as individuals and as a body, as a corporate body, um, would you be so kind to point out those areas of our lives right now that that need some attention, that need we need your help with, especially areas where goodness is lacking, moral goodness is lacking, and we're choosing what is wrong and what is unhealthy and what is hurtful versus choosing what you say is right and good and best for us. Would you help us to be honest about where that is and what it is? 
And then by the power of your spirit, give us the courage and the strength to say no to those things that are wrong and hurtful and offensive and unhealthy and say yes to what is morally good before you are God. To go deeper with you, Lord, requires this kind of honesty. And uh, as we sing this song, um, I pray that uh, it would be true for each of us, our desire to go deeper with you. Just give us the courage to do it and pour out your spirit on us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And I, I like the, the last lines of that song, I want to know you more, I want to know you more. And, you know, my hope is that that is the, the prayer of our hearts as, as followers of Jesus. But here's, here's what makes the good news of Christianity so good, that it's not even about our desire to want to know God, but his desire to want to know us. He came to find us. He descended to us because of his love for us. And all he asks is that we believe. Believe and receive, really. Uh, Christianity is not about achieving. It's about receiving. A massive difference. And um, I hope you understand that. It's about the grace of God, not your good works. A lot of us have tried the good work deal and were crushed by it because somewhere along the line you figure it out, I'm just not that good. Um, but that, that's what makes the good news so incredibly good. Why don't you stand with me? And if you have some more questions, maybe you have some questions about this. Maybe you come from a, a background, a religion, religious background that was more about your efforts and guilt and, and you want to you talk to somebody more about you know, this idea of Christianity and this idea of God's grace. Some of our prayer team folks will be down here in the front. You can come and talk with them. Um, but I'm glad you're here, and I hope you'll come back next week as we continue to uh, see what Paul has to say about the fruit of the Spirit, and we'll move on down the list next week, and hopefully you're finding this helpful. I know that I am, personally. So um, in the meantime, have a great week. Let me pray for you, and then we're dismissed. Now, Lord, I pray that as we leave this building, as your people, uh, we would go um, with uh, a great sense of joy and peace. Um, knowing that our life with you is not about our efforts and goodness, but about your grace. And when you come and you move in our lives, you do begin to change us, and we begin to live in such a way that we mirror these things that are true of you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness. And as we do, we point, we point our friends and our family and our world to you, the God who loves them. And so may we live in such a way this week by the power of your spirit at work. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here, folks. We'll see you next Sunday.